From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. How a passion for insects like spiders and butterflies is helping a DACA recipient get through the uncertainty of immigration. Because, you know, they're able to migrate and move around freely and be a part of the bigger picture, the same way that I'm a part of the bigger picture. Plus, revisiting creative innovators in Colorado, like two women working to create a digital green book. When you go into a space, did you feel welcomed? Did you feel respected? Did you feel celebrated? The social dilemma that keeps people scrolling and posting on platforms like Twitter and TikTok. We're being fed these things that are a mirrored reflection of ourselves. And a time-traveling bicycle. We wanted it to be antiquated so that it was historically old, but at the same time, futuristically charming. During a time when so many of us have been physically distanced from friends, neighbors, and colleagues, your generous support has helped Colorado Public Radio bridge the gaps, bringing our community together through the stories that connect us all. Voluntary support is the lifeblood of the content and coverage we all rely on. Thank you for being our partner in making this kind of radio happen for the Colorado community each and every day. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Thousands of DACA recipients living in Colorado may be moving past years of uncertainty. President-elect Joe Biden plans to continue the deferred action for childhood arrivals when he takes office. He tweeted in November, Dreamers are Americans, and it's time we make it official. And this month, a federal judge ordered the program to be fully restored. For a young DACA recipient in Aurora, it's news he's been waiting to hear. Colorado Matters producer Ali Budner found he has a unique perspective when it comes to immigration. Efrain Leal Escalera's walls are crawling with bugs. I see all the bug pictures in the background there. It's a nice... <laughs> yeah. I'm a little crazy with my bugs. <laughs> He gives me a tour over video chat of the glass box frames behind him, studded with pinned butterflies and other insects. There's a clock with scorpions on it. I'm from Durango, Mexico. Durango is, the, is known as the, the state of scorpions. Escalera is a budding entomologist and an artist living in Aurora. My mom and dad will tell you I've always been, you know, looking under rocks or looking at plants and collecting ladybugs in jars, a bunch of spiders in jars. And, you know, I've always been a little nature nerd. Escalera is also undocumented. His parents brought him to the United States when he was six years old. He says he's known about his immigration status as long as he can remember. And he sees it as symbolically intertwined with his passion for insects. I guess I... I associated with the spiders and, you know, growing up and nobody liked them, nobody liked the bugs. And um, I just took a special refuge with them. In 2012, he applied to the DACA program. That stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It granted him access to a temporary social security number and some hope for a future working in the sciences. He got a job with the Denver Botanic Gardens and took a few biology classes at Metropolitan State University. But at a certain point, he had to step away from this metamorphosis and go dormant, as he puts it. His mental health was suffering. I was struggling with other things, you know, identity and, and being Mexican and being, you know, gay, queer, 
navigating through all of that. He says he suffered from depression and imposter syndrome because he hadn't had access to federal grants or scholarships to follow the normal path of study in science. He also worried about his dad, who spent nearly a year in the ICE detention facility in Aurora. Going through all of that and and knowing that it was senseless and pointless and that we have to prove our worth to be in this country and uh, it's it's very heavy and depressing and and but also it's also a source of fuel a source of, of energy a source of, of uh, resilience too he started to turn his passion for the natural world into photography and collage work unlike science he didn't feel he needed formal training to dive into artistic expression. You know, I've gotten inspiration from outside my window. He uses twigs and leaves and body parts of mostly non-native or immigrant insects to create symmetrical patterns like mandalas. He wants his art to communicate that migration is a natural process, and perhaps even a beautiful one. I get inspiration from the monarchs, the the whales, um, dragonflies, birds, they, they migrate and, and they make my life that much more bearable because, you know, they're able to migrate and move around freely and be a part of the bigger picture, just as me, just as, as the same way that I'm a part of the bigger picture. He started to show his artwork in public and his images provoke questions. Like, how did you get to be able to take that picture? Like, what's that appendage for? Why do they look like that? Um, where does it come from? You know, it, it starts conversations just and, and those lead to more conversations. After a while, people start asking him about immigration. Through bugs and through nature, I've, I've become a resource for my community. I've started seeing people come up to me for, for questions, for resources, for where to go, what to do, where, where, what can I do to get my DACA. Escalera says he and his peers have been anxious about DACA since the Trump administration tried to end the program back in 2017. But the recent court ruling gave him renewed hope. A federal judge ordered the Trump administration Friday to fully restore Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, also known as DACA. The program will now be open to new applicants for the first time since 2017. Escalera heard the news on social media. I was just at home amongst my bugs and my camera and I was just so excited. It was so ecstatic because I've been waiting and waiting for this to happen. Now he has cautiously optimistic plans for the near future. He wants to help other immigrants apply for DACA. He also wants to move his career forward by studying and photographing bugs around the world. But first... I want to go visit my grandparents. You know, they're they're getting older and I, I haven't seen my grandpa in like years, 20 years now. You know, this this COVID thing is, has been really tough on them. Up on Escalera's wall, amidst the photos of praying mantises and spiders, there's a map of the world. He says it helps him remember he belongs in the world. He's excited to get out there and know he has a home to come back to, at least for now. I'm Ali Budner, CPR News. President-elect Biden also plans to make Dreamers eligible for federal student loans and Pell Grants. As the year comes to a close, we're revisiting interviews with Colorado authors and creative visionaries from 2020, like Parker McMullen Bushman and Crystal Egley. They're working together to create a digital green book. The original was published in the 1930s. A black postal worker named Victor Hugo Green created the segregation-era guide to help black people avoid violence and discrimination as they traveled by identifying safe and welcoming businesses and places. It stopped publication in the 19. 19- 
1967, a few years after the Civil Rights Act passed. But some see a need for a new version of the Green Book because of entrenched racism. That's where McMullen Bushman and Egley come in. We spoke in June. Hello to you both. Hi, thanks for having us. Hello. Parker, you work at the Butterfly Pavilion in Westminster on community education and inclusion. You're also the founder of Ego Inclusive, which provides leadership training for building culturally diverse staff. And Crystal, you're a videographer for a public land management organization. So you both share a love for the outdoors and a passion for environmental issues. And you both have experiences of these spaces being unwelcoming to Black people. Tell us more about that, Crystal, especially as a hunter. Yeah, I grew up pretty outdoorsy, so I love backpacking, fly fishing, camping, all of that stuff. But it wasn't until I started hunting a couple of years ago where I realized that the discomfort I was feeling was growing exponentially when I was walking around these open spaces in public land with a firearm now. So that's kind of what um, jilted me out of the wall I'd gotten into of feeling comfortable with my discomfort, I'd gotten used to it, you know? And so now, though, I add this extra element, the hunting element to it, and the outdoors started feeling a lot scarier and more dangerous to me. And some of the best places to go hunting are oftentimes places I don't know if I can be fully comfortable feeling safe in. And so I just kind of was like, well, what if there was a place that listed safe places, safe, like help me know for sure before I planned my travel that I would be safe and welcomed in a town, a restaurant, um, a hotel where I was staying. And I realized the green book was that uh, historic, uh, historical green book. And I was like, well, wouldn't it be cool if there was a modern version of that, you know, took it into the 21st century, you know, maybe a website or an app. And I realize there's a lot of places that have that on a smaller scale, but not on a on a larger scale. So that's kind of what sparked my interest in in quantifying these these safe spaces. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about that feeling of unsafety. What does that stem from or what was that feeling? Yeah, it's pretty common. It's also pretty hard to explain. Oftentimes I'm I'm not believed. Uh, so when I go into a store and I'm followed around and I, I tell people, my, my white peers, my white family members, you know, I felt really uncomfortable uh, in that store. There was a lot of people staring at me. Oftentimes that's dismissed as, you know, if I had reported a different type of service gone wrong, such as getting bad food in a restaurant or poor service on trying to return an item, people believe that. But often with racial discomfort, there's that hesitation to believe and that compounds over time and it it really hurts, you know? And so we want to build a place, a website where we believe people, we believe these stories and we can compile them so that everyone can see, you know, it wasn't just me that one time. And that is what we want to do for people of marginalized identities. We want to be kind of like a Yelp for inclusivity, you know? I like that. There are these layers of discomfort, not only the discomfort, but also the discomfort of just not being believed. And Parker, you also have a story about feeling unsafe or unwelcome while you were traveling. Yeah, I'm an environmentalist that has worked in the field of conservation and outdoor recreation for 23 years. And I have oftentimes along my my path, my professional path, uh, find myself in spaces where I'm the only person of color. Um, And those 
feelings of, you know, being the odd one out, it can really also extend into your daily life. Um, We know that there is an issue with people uh, feeling safe in our outdoor spaces and in our parks. And that issue also extends into the daily lives of people with marginalized identities. And so some of those things can be like last summer, I was I was traveling cross country with my family and we were driving along a backcountry road and looking for a place to stop for my four-year-old to use the restroom. And when we pulled off at the first place that we stopped because, you know, that we saw because we didn't know what else was available. And when we got there, um, we're an interracial family. My husband took my four-year-old inside and I stayed outside with my other two kids. Um, he went inside. He said the reception was very chilly. The music stopped. It was like an old scene in a Western. People stopped talking. Everyone turned and stared at him. And the person at the counter um, wouldn't look at him and barely spoke to tell him where the restroom was. Meanwhile, I was outside trying to change the diaper of my uh toddler and I hear the ringing of a bell behind me and I turn around and there were three large uh, white men standing there with their arms crossed staring at me. They didn't speak to each other. They didn't speak to me. They just stared at me and my van and my husband came out moments later um, rushing up to me speaking under his uh, breath you know get in the car let's go let's go. And so we definitely had a feeling of being unsafe and that we were not welcome in that establishment. And that's a feeling that extends, you know, uh, to lots of folks. And so we're really trying to help answer the questions for people. When you go into a space, did you feel welcome? Did you feel respected? Did you feel celebrated? Because that's what inclusive spaces are all about. And, you know, our company, Inclusive Journeys, really wants to help identify safe spaces so that people can know, you know, they can look it up on an app or on a website to say, what spaces can I stop at here that are going to be safe and welcoming for myself, for my family? Because we've seen in the news lately, sometimes if you go into the wrong space, it can be deadly, right? With people's lives are on the line. And as a Black woman, I never know whether someone's bias, conscious or unconscious, is going to affect the way that they serve me. Right. So like the original Green Book, this is a question of safety. Tell us about how you think that this resource could work. You know, we want to create a crowdsourced database of spaces so that people can go and look up and see, okay, not only what spaces are safe for me, but maybe what spaces have the things that I need. So we want to overlap things like our spaces, ADA, uh, compliant, our spaces welcoming to uh, trans folk, our spaces welcoming to other people in the LGBTQIA community. Um, do we want this to have layers and to help serve lots of different people with lots of different uh, backgrounds? The other thing, though, is we want to extend 
um, resources to businesses because it's not always easy for a business to understand um, why, what about their space may not be welcoming. So this website for the first time will have data that businesses can see and will also have resources to help businesses self-audit for inclusion so they can improve and a range of free-to-paid resources such as referrals to diversity, equity, and inclusion resources and trainings. Um, with this website, we're finally going to be able to hold businesses accountable for their impact rather than their intent and provide them with resources that will be really helpful. So there's a lot of intersectionality and even some education. Um the two of you have been talking about this idea for almost a year, but decided to start fundraising and getting the project going in the last few weeks. Why did you feel like right now is the right time, Crystal? We have been working on this for about six to eight months now, and it was really slow going. We knew that we would need a lot of resources, especially financially, to be able to to put this forward and to move this project forward. It's a huge huge project. And I actually started trying to learn how to code on my own. And it turns out I'm, I, I'm an artsy kid at heart. So, <laughs> um, that work out. And so we realized that although we have these amazing ideas and visions and we know, know what we want and need, um, we couldn't figure out really how to, again, make people understand and believe us in this mission and with our goals for this website. And then the recent events that have have started to shift the, the dialogue and the conversation. And now society as a whole is starting to hear these stories and believe them. And so we were finally able to get to a point where we can tell people this idea and tell them about these experiences and how global they are to marginalized individuals. And people are listening right now. And they're believing right now. And we are not going to let that go. We're going to create this resource that will last forever, not just for the people that it affects, people of uh, black, brown, indigenous, people of LGBTQ community, um, not just for them, but so allies can also know where these businesses are. People are starting to be more aware of social issues and companies and organizations' positions before they spend their dollars. And the vision for this project is an app or some kind of digital space where people can share stories and these experiences you're talking about. But this was inspired by the original Green Book, like we've said. And Parker, you talked to your father about this project, and he remembers using the Green Book himself. I'd love for you to reflect on this history and what it means to you. My father is about to turn 70. And so he remembers the time when this was really necessary and it had felt like he he thought he had hoped that by this time we would be beyond that, right? But we are still finding a need to to mark safe spaces. And that's a part of what we're doing. That's what's so powerful. We actually our logo is a um a quilt code from the Underground Railroad. Uh, the Flying Geese Square, which was used to signal the direction that flying geese were traveling as they migrated. And it was used to symbol places that slaves could stop to rest, to uh, get food, and that would be safe spaces. And here we are, you know, 
400 years <laughs> of Black people being in this land, and we still have to have a way to mark safe spaces. And so I feel like this is, is really important, is valuable for our community, and not just for the Black community, but for every um, one that is of a marginalized identity that needs to find a, a voice. And how about for you, Crystal? What does the history of the Green Book and this history of needing to mark safe spaces mean to you? It would be invaluable. <laughs> the concept Parker was talking about with our logo uh, is is literally my my dream come true. Actually, actually, yeah, it's my dream coming true right now. Um, so our idea is to take that logo and put it on doors of businesses, kind of like a Yelp or TripAdvisor, um, you know, sticker, so that people can actually see like, okay, this bakery, if I go go in there, they will make my cake, you know, um, things like that. If I had that <laughs> growing up, you know, if, if, if there were teachers who had this logo on their classroom door or friends who had it, that, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm about to cry. <laughs> I can't even explain how much easier it would be to navigate life knowing that there were allies out there who wanted to proudly show their allyship and say, like, you know, we are here for you and you are valued on the, the same level as everybody else when you enter into this space. And to be able to identify those spaces before you go into them, I mean, the, the historical trauma uh, is compounded, not just not just in my lifetime, but over generations. And it is. Um, we're hoping that we can build a resource so that we can start to undo those layers of trauma and help people just be able to navigate everyday life, you know, just going to a store, going to a barbecue in a park, bird watching. Like, it's literally just everyday life. We're trying to keep people safe and feel that wholesome, regular feeling of just being able to walk out your door, go to where you want to go and feel safe and welcome. You have a GoFundMe campaign, and you're hearing from the community who do see a need for this. What are you hearing, Crystal? I was overwhelmed by the comments of people saying that it was it was absolutely needed. I know it's needed. Parker knows it's needed. Our friends know it's needed. But there was still this thing inside of me, which is probably conditioned by society, to tell me that my ideas aren't quite as good, quite as valued because of my identity, like these conditioned responses to even myself. So it was incredibly validating to to see everybody. I mean, I had classmates from second grade that I haven't, or, you know, that I haven't seen since elementary school. I had distant family members um, messaging me, telling me this is needed. This is this is wanted. There were strangers, um, people who are just starting their journeys into these discussions. And it was overwhelmingly validating to me uh, after a lifetime of being basically gaslit about how I feel in these spaces to have the, the community, especially the people I haven't connected with in a long time, coming out and saying, this is an amazing idea. It's needed. I, we hear you. We support you. It's one of the first times in my life that I have felt so centered and so heard. And I just cannot thank people enough for supporting us in this. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. 
Parker McMullen Bushman and Crystal Egley started Inclusive Journeys to create a digital green book. Now it's Egley's full-time job. They hope to launch a beta version of it this summer. After the break, does it feel hard to break away from social media platforms like Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok? There is a good reason for that. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's a story that dominated the 2020 news cycle. That more than 60% of Coloradans back a policy of staying at home to slow the spread of coronavirus. It's not yet reached the number that we need to save lives. And we have hospitals, especially in some of the more remote areas, that are absolutely full right now. Designated to receive the Pfizer vaccine. I'm Leo Gomez and we got the COVID vaccine here for you. The story of the coronavirus pandemic is still being told. Trust the facts. Trust CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Have you gotten caught doom-scrolling, flipping through apps on your phone from Twitter to Facebook to Instagram to Snapchat or TikTok? The Netflix documentary The Social Dilemma explores how social media platforms are designed to keep people scrolling and posting. Jeff Orlovsky of Boulder directed the film We Spoke in September. Before we talk about your film, tell me about your relationship with your phone. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, my relationship with my phone now is very, very different than it was two or three years ago. Um, I used to be a very, very Facebook addict, um, uh, social media in general, but Facebook was my weak spot. And when we started working on this project, I really started to understand the dynamics that were at play and the the mechanisms that were bringing me back to the platform. Um, this project has completely transformed my relationship with technology. And I'm, I'm so much more intentional around what is serving me? Like, when is it a tool for me? Um, when is it helping me versus when is it trying to get something from me? Now, a lot of people know you for your documentaries focused on climate change, like Chasing mm-hmm. Ice and Chasing Coral. Is the social dilemma a departure or is it also something of an existential threat? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't think of it as a departure at all. Um, we have been trying to spend our time in our filmmaking looking at big issues. Like, what are the biggest issues to humanity? What are the things that are a threat to society? Um, Climate change has always been at the top of that list for me and and still is. And then when we started learning about this problem, we started to realize that, wait, there's a climate change of culture that is happening invisibly because of the way our technology silos us and feeds us information. It almost doesn't matter what you individually care about. This issue of how our technology has reshaped our information ecosystem is affecting the things that you care about. I love that description as a climate change of culture. I have to credit Tristan and Aza, uh, two of our subjects in the film who came up with that phrase. Yeah, it's really descriptive and it kind of captures the imagination. Now, in the documentary, you talk to some of the architects of Google, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, and they're all saying the same thing. Their programs are addictive by design. Why is that? So the interesting challenge here is that Many years ago, these tech platforms were stuck trying to figure out a way to make money. And they wanted to offer these services for free. And the way that they could make money was through advertising. They've made better and better and better tools for advertisers. And they've been able to figure out how to get people to stay on longer so we can show them more ads. The advertising business model incentivizes time. It incentivizes 
knowing you individually and feeding you information individually that keeps you spending more and more time. And the more data we have about you, the more we know who you are, what makes you tick, the better we can target you with ads. So this seemingly innocent model at the start has morphed into this addiction frame and it's morphed into this political polarization frame and it's morphed into having all these health impacts on mental health for teenagers. There are really many, many unintended consequences of that decision from many years ago. And I mean, on the one hand, it seems kind of nice. YouTube learns what kind of videos I like, but what's wrong with tailored content? Yeah, it seems so innocent. And this is one that's been a a huge struggle, I think, in, in many ways, both to for me to understand what the challenge is and to communicate it. For much content, I actually don't think there's a huge issue. There's, there's, It's not the advertisement itself that's the problem. If somebody's trying to sell me another pair of sneakers, like it's not the end of the world. Where this gets really problematic in my mind is both A, the need to find what works on you to keep you on, right? So it's individualized addictiveness. Um, what works for me on Facebook is going to be something completely different that works for you on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or what have you. So we're being fed these things that are a mirrored reflection of ourselves. And in many cases, it's our weakest vulnerabilities. So it's the things that you maybe don't want to look at necessarily or aren't good for your mental health, but pull you in. But the second aspect to this question is really where this overlaps with news and information. The idea of customized news is what we've basically entered into, where you could enter into a political filter bubble, where you've been reinforced particular thoughts over however many years you've been on a particular platform. And now your thoughts are so completely different than somebody else who's getting a different political filter bubble. We've drifted away from a shared truth. We each live in our own 2.7 billion Truman shows. Everybody's in their own little political kind of insulated worldview and making it harder and harder for us to have shared conversation about things we disagree about. We're going to get into those silos in a moment, but we should say these technologies, they're so accessible because they don't cost anything to use. But the tech executives in the film that you interviewed, they say it's not that simple. It's a little even trite to say now, but because we don't pay for the products that we use, advertisers pay for the products that we use. Advertisers are the customers. We're the thing being sold. The classic saying is, if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. That's Aza Raskin, who worked at Firefox and Mozilla Labs, and Tristan Harris, a former ethicist at Google. Jeff, if we're the product Google and Facebook are selling, who wants to buy us? Um, Jaron Lanier in our film, he describes them as the manipulators. It's like this broader category, not just of advertisers, but of anybody who wants to do political manipulation as well, or anybody who wants to sell an idea to an audience. And it really is this um, tool that's designed to get a message into somebody's pocket, right? To surround somebody individually with their message. It, It always baffles me we don't pay anything for these products, right? So we can use Facebook or Twitter or YouTube and it doesn't cost us anything, yet they're worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And together they are the richest industry in the history of money. And if you just let that sink in for a second, it's like, how can it cost nothing and yet be worth so much? This manipulation backbone to their software is in fact the way they make the most money. And you mentioned Jaron Lanier. You describe him as the founding father of virtual reality. He actually says that advertisers are seeking to subtly change our behavior, not just get our attention. 
Yeah, I mean, the idea of why would I want to spend money to put something in front of you? It's either to get you to click on that thing with potentially the hope of you buying that thing, or it's to change the way you think about this thing to maybe get you to act differently. In some cases, it might just be to get you to not vote. And that was a very, very effective technique that was used by Russian like propagandists in the 2016 election. Uh, we have a line from Roger McNamee in the film where he says, Russia didn't hack Facebook. They just used Facebook. There was a bombshell whistleblower that came out, uh, a former Facebook employee, that talked about international political manipulation at Facebook. And she was a middle manager employee and said she had such a crazy amount of power to determine you know, what kind of influence the president of Honduras could have over his people, seeing this in countless different countries. We're referencing Facebook quite a bit, but the same exact thing is happening at YouTube or TikTok or Twitter or Instagram. And The Social Dilemma, it's not a traditional documentary. Actors dramatize a middle schooler wrestling with body image because of social media, and high schoolers navigate screen time and even targeted misinformation like we're talking about. We watch these kids and even their parents deal with the angst social media can create. What did you learn about mental health while making the film? Oh, my goodness. This was a huge, huge area for so many people that we spoke with. The mental health aspects, and especially with teenagers, is really one of the big, big concerns in all of this. I'm 36 years old. So when I got onto social media, my prefrontal cortex was fully developed, this place in our brain of higher rational thought. We are bombarding our youth with these technologies while they're still in their developmental phases of life, while their brain is still forming, while their social relationships is still forming. And we're training youth around certain behaviors and actions around how society values them or appreciates them. I've heard stories of youth spending 12 hours a day on social media. And the house of mirrors that you're surrounding yourself with, if that's your worldview on a daily basis as a 12-year-old or a 16-year-old, how does that reshape the way you think of yourself and the way you compare yourself to others? It really is morphing an entire generation. And it's not just about these individuals or just kids. Let's get back to this idea of a climate change of society. Um, it struck me that the experts in your film say that the echo chambers and those house of mirrors, the misinformation that thrives in social media, it's actually by design. Here's Sandy Parakilis, a former product manager at Facebook, and Tristan Harris. We've created a system that, that biases towards false information. Not because we want to, but because false information makes the companies more money than the truth. The truth is boring. It's a disinformation for profit business model. You make money the more you allow unregulated messages to reach anyone for the best price. Jeff, did that surprise you? Yeah, I, I think, you know, when I was a very, very active user of social media, I was very accustomed to just seeing all the stuff that was coming in and embracing it. And when I started learning about this and I could step back and remove myself from being like a node in the system and I could step back and look at the whole system as a whole, I picture all of these nodes that are interconnected where the incentive of the algorithm is to get as many people to post as many things to as many other people to get as much engagement as possible. The bigger we grow the network, the more conversation, the more chatter we have, the more money we make. And all of that from a very rational algorithm perspective has nothing to do with truth. It has nothing to do with values. 
Nothing is fact-checked in the system, right? Every Anything inbound, anything that's coming into the system. When you look at journalism, journalists are trained to fact-check their stories before they publish. There's built-in friction to make sure that the content is accurate. And if it's inaccurate, journalists run a fact-check, uh, a, a correction afterwards. These systems are designed around user-generated content. Everybody, give us anything you got. Like, literally, we'll take anything you got and we'll show it to a bunch of people and see what sticks. And if it sticks, we'll upvote it and we'll show it to more people. And if it's really, really problematic, then, you know, the content moderators come in and step in and, and filter it. But it is a completely different system that doesn't value truth. It doesn't value society's values. It really is this mindset of let's figure out what gets you to come back and what gets you to stay. And whatever gets you to come back and gets you to stay more is going to be beneficial to the system. And that's where, for some people, it might be a political content on a particular worldview. For me, it was political content. Political content got me really, really heavily stuck to Facebook in the 2016 election. And I could see friends arguing. I could see friends that very much agreed about things arguing over tiny little things and like hurting friendships because of different information that each of them was seeing. You know, I've been starting to recommend to people, if there's somebody in your life that you disagree with, take their phone and show them your phone and look at their feed and show them your feed and have a conversation around how you have completely different facts that you're operating off of because you're shown very, very different stories. And that's what the algorithms tend toward. That's what creates success for an algorithm. It's more and more engagement. And there's a lot of doom and gloom here, but what solutions do the tech folks that you interviewed offer? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think actually the many of the technologists that we've spoken to are optimistic. One of our subjects, Jaron Lanier, he had this great line. He's like, people call me a pessimist, but I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm an optimist. I believe things can be better. It's the complacent people. It's the ones who are happy with the status quo. They're the true pessimists. I think there's a space for criticism here to make the platforms better, to hold them to account. You know, ultimately, this is just code written by people. You know, the code can be changed. The code could be modified. You know, a handful of programmers, a handful of engineers and CEOs could say, no, we don't want this business model. We're going to move away from this business model. This is how we're going to transition. And this is how we're going to get off of extracting data from the public. We're going to make tools and services that are in the public's interest. That's what we want to do. And I could see that transition happening. And that's something that brings me a lot of hope and optimism is that really at the end of the day, this is software and we can change the code. So there's a hopeful takeaway. It does not have to be this way. Absolutely. Jeff Orlovsky of Boulder directed The Social Dilemma, a documentary that explores the dystopian side of social media. It's streaming on Netflix. We spoke in September. Large transit agencies like RTD have cut service and jobs to prepare for years of financial pain due to the pandemic. But the picture looks far different in Pueblo, where a small system has stable funding and still carries vulnerable residents. CPR's Nathaniel Minor reports. Jesse Espinoza of Pueblo is used to hard times. He grew up poor, one of seven children in a single-parent household. At 21, he still needs to finish high school. But he says that the struggle this year has been harder than ever. He lost his job last week. He was on his way to sell plasma when I met him on a city bus on a recent morning. I don't really have anyone to help me out, so really the bus is my only source of transportation right now. 
I could take a taxi or something, but when I'm broke, the bus is really it. Others on this bus include retirees and people who can't drive for medical reasons. As transit ridership has dropped during the pandemic, the passengers who've remained are those who really need it. Pueblo Mayor Nick Gratisar says the city's transit system exists mostly to serve them. We've sort of bent over backwards to try to make sure that those services are available. The city has cut transit service only slightly, and it hasn't laid anyone off. Reserves and a federal grant helped with that. Ben Valdez of Pueblo Transit says its size, only 40-some employees and 12 bus lines, it's an advantage. At this time and place in the world, it's easier to be a smaller transit agency than a larger transit agency. We don't have the overhead issues that the larger transit agencies have to deal with. RTD in Denver is in a much different position. It serves transit-dependent riders, too. But the pandemic means most downtown commuters are staying home and not paying fares. That's contributed to a massive budget deficit. It's planning hundreds of layoffs and has drastically cut service. But that pain exists in part because RTD is a bigger system that serves a faster-growing metro area. In the long run, policymakers see transit as key to helping fight traffic and pollution. For Pueblo, the needs are different. Mayor Nick Gratisar says traffic isn't a big issue here. The city isn't trying to get people out of their vehicles. They just want them to drive cleaner cars. Pueblo has a goal of being uh, 100% renewable by 2035 in terms of our electricity needs. So, you know, I've been driving an electric vehicle for seven years. Some passengers, like Jesse Espinoza, hope to be able to afford a car someday. But he says with jobs so hard to come by, he's grateful he can at least catch a ride for now. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Cyclists are usually focused on what's ahead, on the road or the trail. But Grand Junction bike store owner and avid cyclist Chris Brown prefers to look backwards. He's a cycling history buff. He has a bicycle museum in his Brown Cycles shop. And this year he published a historical fiction book called Bicycle Junction. It takes readers through 140 years of the Grand Valley cycling-related past. We spoke in November. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Over the years, you've collected boxes of Grand Junction cycling photos and memorabilia. What made you think, there's a book here? Um, People keep giving me pieces and parts and collections and things and pictures and articles and stories. And I wanted to sew them all together so you could read them in one chunk just for interest. And so for the last 10 years, I've been trying to figure out how to do that. And so we sat down about five years ago and, and were able to put it all together. Tell me a little bit about what's in those boxes. What kind of memorabilia have people been giving you? Uh, They give me family heirlooms like gold watches, uh, trophies from 1928, uh, newspaper clippings of their great-grandfathers on bicycles downtown, like the actual photos. And I'm kind of surprised that they're willing to give this stuff up, but they do. And I feel honored by that. So I want to preserve it and I want to reflect it somehow, some way, and, and honor those memories and those stories. You're a keeper of this history. Now, Bicycle Junction, it doesn't follow a straight path for historical fiction. It has a sci-fi element of time travel with a fictitious unnamed narrator riding a strange bike through 14 decades of Grand Junction's actual history. Without giving too much of your story away, tell us a little bit about the bike your protagonist rides and just give us a taste of the journey it takes him on. Right. So the only way you could tie these things together was um, break it up by decades which is what I did. And then I created a bike that would ride through those decades. So it, it became a time machine of sorts. And, um, but we actually physically built it as well. And so you can actually see this thing and ride it. What does it look like? We wanted it to be antiquated so that it was historically old, but at the same time, futuristically kind of 
charming. And so it's steel, it's got leather seats and cork grips, which is traditional. It's single speed, which is traditional. But the turning points are actually in the middle of the frame. And so it's something that you might find 10 years or 20 years down the road. And you've actually used those photographs that people have given you. There are more than 400 historical photographs in this book. How did those photos inspire your characters? So we laid the photos out chronologically in time, and then we just wove a story through the photos talking about the people and the ancestry and the history of of Grand Junction, which ties back to those photos. So a lot of our um, ancestors in Grand Junction that the streets and buildings are named after are actually on those bicycles doing those races and and competing and, and socializing. And tell me about Ethel Carson. Ethel Carson, uh, the first Harley-Davidson bike shop, uh, one of the first uh, turn of the century, is actually um, 1914-ish. And then her husband ends up dying of the uh, Spanish flu in 1918. But anyway, so he had the Schwinn shop in town and Ethel Carson was his wife. Most of the people in Grand Junction came from Kansas and Nebraska at the turn of the century. And so she was from there. So she's just kind of this old traditional pioneer frontiers woman, you know, good wife that fell into this tragic loss with her husband passing away. And Ethel Carson was one of those characters that you developed based on the photographs. What from her photographs drew you in? Um, It's amazing how you can look at a picture and draw inferences on people. And her family's all over this valley. And so I was able to get to them and uh, have conversations with them about her. She passed away in 1972. And they gave me the affirmation, yeah, you're spot on. You you can take pictures and look at things and and make judgment calls on it and then um, feel pretty good about what you've come up with. What did she look like in her photos? She wore high leather boots, two-inch heels, always had a cigarette in her hand, the white gloves, boots were lace up, pretty traditional turn of the century. But in a desert town, none of that stuff really works very well in our deep sand. <laughs> so <laughs> she was modern in all senses of the word, but in a, in a weird place to be modern. Yeah, she sounds like quite a woman. You throw out a word at the beginning of your book, prosopography, to describe your approach to history. What does that mean? And how does it fit into a book about cycling? Right. So if you take your ancestry kin and talk about the culture and what they did and how they acted and kind of everything surrounding that, that's what prosopography means. And so it was really kind of a a study on how people socialized, got along, what they did for fun, what they did for work, as well as uh, tying the cycling with that. And then just the culture of Grand Junction of how it developed and how it grew. Did you have a particular audience in mind when you wrote this book? I had three. Um, the older folks in Grand Junction will get this stuff because they rode in those bicycle parades in the 50s and th- things like that. Uh, cyclists will get this because we included trail maps, current ones in the book. And so they'll sort of, of key into that. And then my third audience was some kid 100 years from now that just wants to know what cycling was like in Grand Junction 100 years ago. I really like that. You also weave in some interesting historical tidbits into this book that don't really have anything to do with cycling, like the fact that they used to keep a caged lion in the city park. There was once a Miss Atomic energy pageant where the winner went home with a pickup load of radioactive uranium ore. Some of those things sound stranger than fiction. Are they all true? Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that's fiction in this book is the character that rides through it. All the conversations, people, places are actual history of Grand Junction things. So, yeah. And some of the stranger things in your book, they are related to cycling. and They include a local bike gang that used to fill their tires with buttermilk. Tell us about the Buttermilk Boys. 
the buttermilk voice. We currently put uh, latex in our tires. So if we get flat tires, they seal up instantly. We can keep riding. But at the turn of the century, they would do the same with buttermilk. And so it would coagulate and sour. And then if you got thorns or carpet tacks from the upholstery from the buggies, which happened a lot in that sand, it would just seal up and you could keep riding as well. I bet it smelled great too. <laughs> it smelled great. So occasionally those tires would burst or break off and coat people on the street with um, sour buttermilk. Oh, gross. <laughs> um, your own life, it's also, you've had some book-worthy adventures, like riding your bike from Colorado to New York State to visit your grandmother when you were in high school. How did bikes become your life's passion and your livelihood and now your springboard into fiction? There you go. It's really your first taste of freedom. Everybody has a bike story. Everybody. People that don't even cycle have bike stories. And so it's great common ground if you want to get a group of people together and, and just meet people and talk. And you mentioned the trail guides that are in your book. Bicycle Junction, it's sort of a how-to for today's cyclists. It's got those maps and route descriptions for 14 rides. You challenge your readers to do those rides. How big of an undertaking is that challenge? So... There's a ride in every chapter. Every chapter represents a decade. And then at the end of every chapter is a current trail map of that ride. So if you did all those rides in that book, you would be about 1,879 miles. And the idea is that you could actually ride through this book. You could read a chapter and then go do the thing and then come home and ride and read another chapter and then do another one. That is a lot of miles. Have you ridden all those? Yeah, I've ridden all those. It would take about a year for a guy to do that. Tell me a little bit about, I think you called it the one bike challenge. You've got a sticker for your bike frame for completing it? Yeah, if you complete that 1,800 miles, I'll, I'll make you a free mug. You can <laughs> use for bragging rights. And I have a sticker that you can put on your frame to tell people and show people what you've done. That's pretty great. Well, Chris, I want to thank you so much for sharing about your book. Thank you. Chris Brown owns Brown's Bicycles in Grand Junction. He's written a historical fiction book called Bicycle Junction that's based on the true history of bicycles in the Grand Valley. We spoke in November. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to the team that helps bring this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Carla Jimenez. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. Paolo Shalsina. And I'm Avery Lill. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play podcast Colorado Matters. Our theme is written and performed by Kip Kipper of Coop Studios in Boulder. We'd like to hear more from you. You can connect with us on Twitter at Colorado Matters or send us an email, coloradomatters at CPR.org. This is CPR News.